Well, please turn your Bibles today to John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4. Uh, of course, the, the well-known account of Jesus with the woman at the well, and again, the dialogue that takes place there uh, regarding the nature of true religion. I'm going to break into the reading in the verse number 19. The Lord has just uh, revealed his omniscience in terms of this woman's experience, five husbands, he whom thou hast not is not thy husband. And then verse 19, uh, let's see the word it says, the woman saith unto him, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, again, may it be a blessing to all of our hearts uh, today. We've been looking again in these last number of weeks and months now, really at this general subject. Let me get this going. Of what we're saying, God is. Now, actually, that statement, you can just put a period there, and that still makes sense, grammatically and theologically. God is. That's the actual profound reality of God's existence. He was, and is, and is to come. He is the eternal God, eternal in the purest sense of that term, having no beginning and no end. God is. God exists. And we've looked at that again over the last number of weeks, proving things regarding the existence of God. But whilst you may put a period there, I've also put it this way, with the idea that, well, there are things that may follow. God is. Well, what may follow? Well, we have words. God is love. God is holy. God is truth. All of these terms that we use to begin to describe the nature and the essence of God. We often use the term attributes. Now, attributes, when it comes to God, are things that God himself has attributed to himself. These are not things that we attribute to God. They are things that he attributes to himself. And in terms of descriptors, how do we know what God is like? Well, he's given us various words to help us. Now, one of the things we've got to come to grasp with in this study, and we're going to through this in the next, uh, next number of months, of course, is the fact that God is incomprehensible. Part of the understanding of God is that God is not understandable. He is infinite. Uh, we are finite, and thus he is beyond the scope of our comprehension. And yet... Whilst he is incomprehensible, he is also knowable. 
we can know things about God. That is the case because God has chosen that to be the case. God has sovereignly revealed himself to us in ways that we can grasp. And everything that God wants us to know about himself at the present time has been revealed. And so we actually can know things about the Lord God because he's chosen to reveal himself to us in his grace. And again, there are things that are in the revelation of God that we can grasp. We can begin to define terms. We can uh, genuinely begin to explain what God is like. And so we, we shouldn't have this idea that, well, God, God is beyond us, and we can never get anywhere in our understanding. Again, there are some who have that mindset. But no, God has revealed himself in his word, and that revelation is purposeful, deliberate. He's revealed himself that we might know about him, that we might worship him, that we might love him in obedience to the first commandment. You see, God has given us a command. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the, the first and great commandment. And God has not given that commandment in frustration. But by the help of the Spirit of God, we can actually come to know and love this God. You look at verse number 25 of this section. When Messiah hath come, he will tell us all things. I that speak unto thee am he. Again, my purpose in this passage is not to look at that section, but it is a reminder to us that Christ came ultimately to declare the Father. Now, not for the first time. God has revealed himself in the Old Testament. But now, in incarnate form, we have a fuller revelation of God, even than that which we had in the Old Testament. We see God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I, I mention these things just to really preface our next set of studies. We've looked at God's existence, and now we come to look at God's essence, leading on to then a consideration of his attributes. But what we know about God is what God has revealed. And so I'm going to seek by the help of the Lord to avoid speculative thoughts. Now, what we think about the Lord is what has been revealed in his word. And if there are times that questions may come to your mind and those questions cannot be discerned from the Word of God, well, we won't answer those questions. Say, no, that's not what God has asked us to know. He's revealed himself in terms that we can grasp, that we can understand, and even using language that we can understand is a mark of God's tremendous grace. Now, our focus today really is on the verse number 24. God is... And here we have a, a, a section here. God is a spirit. If you have any kind of awareness of the use of the, of the Greek language, this def, indefinite article, the word a there, is really supplied in a form of translation. And so it is right and proper to say God is a spirit as much as say God is spirit spiritual being. God is spirit. God is a spirit. You'll note again our authorized version has capitalized the word S. There are other beings that are spirits, but God is supreme spirit. This, by the way, this word spirit here is not referring to the third person, the Trinity as we know it. 
This is not saying God is the Holy Spirit. This is saying God in His being, in His essence, all three persons that make up the that make up the being of God, all three persons, God is Spirit. Father is Spirit. Son is Spirit. Holy Ghost is Spirit. All three persons. But God is Spirit. Now it's clear from verse number 24 that understanding God to be Spirit is fundamental to true worship. God is a Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. Again, there's, you go through many theology books and many commentaries, and they, they comment in some detail on this verse. And there are various ways in which we can understand the term in spirit. Should it be capitalized? Is it saying that we worship God in the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, that's true. Of course it's true. But the connection seems to be more the case that we worship God in a spiritual manner. Or spirits, worshipping God who is spirits. And because God is spirit and we are spirits, there is the possibility then of genuine communion and worship. God is spirit and we worship him, must worship in spirit and in truth. And so if we're going to worship properly, we have to understand this idea of God being spirits. Okay, just passing comment. Tell your friends, tell your family. True worship of God is founded upon knowledge, not upon feeling. That is so misunderstood in the modern age. People presume that they've gone to church and worshipped God when they've left with a fuzzy feeling in the pit of their stomach. Now, I believe that there is a physiological component to joy. And so true joy may well give you a fuzzy feeling in the pit of your stomach. And that is not to be despised. But the ground of true worship is not how you feel. It is the knowledge that you express in that worship, which then should then become joyful. So yes, we worship with joy. We worship with trembling. But the foundation of all of that is knowledge. A right understanding of God is vital for right and true worship. And you may feel tremendous joy, but if that joy is not in truth, it is spurious and false and should be despised and shunned. Okay, so I think you understand that. I'm just making the point, just taking the chance to apply that again to your hearts this morning. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, how do we begin to define this? How do we begin to understand this? Well, I'll give you a few minutes, okay? Give me some thoughts here, and then I'll, I'll get... Yeah, George. Okay, so immaterial. Okay, so no matter an immaterial being. Yep, good. Yep, Paul. Okay, so makes idols more heinous. That's the application of it. We'll come to that hopefully this morning. Yep, good. Yeah, so there's more application. If God is spirit, then our, again, we have to worship in our spirits. Not just with our mouths and our lips and our lungs, but it's got to come from the very core of our being, from our spirit. Yeah, Dan?
Yeah. No, I'm sorry. No, that's right. So the, the spirituality of God, again, as Mr. Shannon said, it's, it's got to be spirit worship. And again, the unconverted man is dead. And so it's by the spirit that our souls are quickened. And then our spiritual worship can be genuinely spiritual because we've got the power of the spirit of God. You must be born again. But it's still with knowledge. It's knowledge and spirit. These things come together in true worship. Yep, great. Okay, so again, the application, it's, it's not just in the letter, it's not in the form, it's not in the rituals, but it's also in the spirit. Yeah, I'm just I'm thinking of the essence of defining what does it mean God is spirit? Okay, so we've got, again, as far as pure definition goes, far, goes so far, we've got not material. In pure definition terms. Yeah, Greg. Okay, probably not particularly. Well, it is, it is true. Okay, so spirit is not flesh, although, again, when it comes to that contrast being used in the, in the writings of Paul, it's not so much material and immaterial as it is spiritual and carnal. So flesh is being used in a carnal sense there. George is right in saying spirit and flesh are contrasted in terms of material and immaterial. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's true, true contrast, but, but here's God as spirit. Yeah, Paul? Okay, so limitless, yep. So again, still the sense of material. Yeah, Lars and Marjorie, you can, you can do it together. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's, it's eternal. Although purely in a definition of spirit, there are created spirits as well. So God as the supreme spirit is uncreated. Yeah, but again, as... Uh, there are spirits that are created as well. Okay, so he is a spirit, so he's omnipresent. So, that, so that's, again, the, the essence of his being. God is spirit. Well, let's, let's try to tie this all together. There's some very good thoughts. But again, you've only really got one definition so far. But it's a key one. It's the most important one. We'll start there, okay? So if I can just, I'm going to listen two two ways, okay? We're going to look at it. In terms of, if I can use the term mathematical, in terms of negative, it helps us sometimes to define God by saying what he is not like. Okay, it's just when something is incomprehensible, you begin to describe it by, well, it's not like that. So you, you meet an elephant for the first time, and you've never seen an elephant before. Well, you, you may be described, you, you may have seen a cat and a dog, and so you may describe things that are contrast. Well, in a much profound sense, we say God is not like certain things. Okay, that's part of it. And then we're going to look at it probably, I would imagine next week, we'll think of the positives. And the positives are the things that you have not grasped or not really thought. You, you understand these things, but you haven't thought of them so far. So a spirit is a living entity. The idea of animacy. God lives. The spirit has moral agency. The angels who are spirits could sin. The spirit has a metaphysical faculty, a mind, a will, and affections. And we'll come to that next week. Uh, the spirit's personality. Okay, I am that I am. So God can speak to his personality. All those things are true of all spirits, but supremely true of God. Okay, so I'm just trying, I'm trying to 
open our mind, understanding of these things to see in the breadth there are things that are not true and there are things that are true. Well, let's, again, today we'll probably focus on the, on the negatives of these things uh, today. And that is, uh, negatively, no matter or immaterial or we often put it very simply for the kids, no body. And again, part of that is no parts. And so some rightly say God is simple, supreme spirit. This terminology often used regarding God, God's simplicity, not in terms of an inability to comprehend certain things, but as in the simplest, purest being. God is all that he is, not made of parts. He's not a sum of his attributes. He is all his attributes. He is who he is, the simplicity of God as supreme spirit. These are terms that are, again, that are generally used regarding the existence of God. But turn, turn to Luke chapter 24. Again, just to give some proof for this. Luke 24 And you have, again, the Lord standing in the midst of his disciples after the resurrection. He comes, peace be unto you. They are terrified, understandably so. Verse number 37. And they supposed that they had seen a spirit. Now, here we're going to have in the Bible a helpful indicator as to, well, what's a spirit? Well, the Lord says, he tells them. He says to them, why are you troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. There you go. Simple. There's a contrast. In a negative sense, what's a spirit? Well, here the Lord himself is defining it negatively. Hath not. He doesn't say what it is. He simply says, a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Again, there are different types of spirits. There is a time coming when if we die in Christ, we will go and join the spirits of just men made perfect. They're spiritual beings. They are out of body. They're Bodies are in the grave, but their souls are with Christ, which is far better, but they still exist. They have personality. They have capabilities to worship the Lord. They, they, they have the attributes of a spirit, but they don't have flesh and bones. The same is true for the angelic host. They are spiritual beings. The same is true, again, ultimately for the Lord. The Lord God Jehovah is the supreme spirit. But therefore, in light of that, is immaterial, having no body, nor spirit, pure, perfect, simple spirit. Now, there are some important things from this. If God, this is just a hypothetical situation, if God had a body, if God had flesh and bones, then other things pertaining to God would inevitably be denied. There are other things true regarding the attributes of God that would not be true if God has material substance. He would not be indivisible. 
He would have parts. There could be a division and a separation from God. But God is such that His essence is one pure entity that anything taken away from the purity of God makes God less than God. Anything added to that purity makes God more than God. God is perfect as He is. And part of His perfection is His simplicity in the unity of His being without parts incapable of any division. You can say God is indivisible, and that is a right and proper aspect of true worship. We also think, turn, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We sang the hymn, 1 Timothy chapter 1. In the verse number 17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. And if God has a body, he is not invisible. He does not have that property of invisibility. It's also true that if God has a body, he would not be incomprehensible. When you have a body, it can be grasped, it can be seen and looked upon, and there's an ability to comprehend the human body. But that's not true for God. He is incomprehensible. Somebody also mentioned he is infinite. Now, this is only true, and here's important, the infinity of God regarding space and time is only true regarding the supreme spirit. Other spirits are not infinite in this sense. So in some way, please, this is one of the questions, if you ask the question, I will not answer it. In some way, other spirits are contained in time and space. Other spirits cannot be omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. Only God is infinite regarding space. Those who are with Christ now, the spirits of just men made perfect, are not with us in that sense right now. Uh, You get some of the crazy thoughts of Eastern mysticism, uh, and they have their loved ones sitting with them at the dinner table. That is not true. We may like that thought, but that is not true. The story, Luke 16, of the rich man and Lazarus makes it clear that when people die, they leave this scene of time and they go to another realm. Whatever that may be, but it's a realm that is contained. It's a created realm that is finite. If this caused you simply to bow your head and worship today, then that's good. There are things that are beyond our comprehension, but God as the Supreme Spirit is infinite. So, so far, indivisible, invisible, incomprehensible, infinite, immutable. He is the simple spirit without change. He cannot be added to or subtracted from. If he's a body, that's not the case. Again, a body, something can be removed. You can can take a thumb off, whatever the case may be, in terms of, of a physical entity. Not true for God. He's immutable. Connected to that, and please, I'm not getting to this today, is the thought that God, if he has a body, cannot be impassable. That term refers to God's emotional capabilities. God is not passable in the same way that we are. Your fits of rage require the fullness of your physiology. God has affections. He responds again in Ways that are, again, acts of the will to various stimuli, but he's not emotional in the sense that we are. 
as a spiritual being, not like man. The other one is that, of course, if he's a body, he cannot be omnipresent. Christ, as pertains to his humanity, is with the Father right now. He left this new time, and as Dan said, he sent the Comforter. There's a sense in which a body renders, uh, again, Christ in his humanity as being located in time and space. As to his deity, he is clearly omnipresent. But as to his humanity, he is not omnipresent. So a body render, would render God as being not omnipresent. These are things that are beyond our understanding. But they're part of the things that are true as God is a spirit. So you've got these, and he can't be indivisible. He couldn't be invisible. He couldn't be incomprehensible. He couldn't be infinite. He couldn't be immutable. And he couldn't be impassable. Those are some of the things that are true or would be true if God has a material form. Now, I get this is, this is pretty heavy theology. I understand that. So what's it got to do for you on a Sunday morning? Well, before we close today, there's two lines of application that I want to leave with you. And they relate to two questions you may have in your own mind. You are made in God's image. How does this affect that concept? We believe, Genesis makes it clear, man is made in the image of God. So what are your thoughts? What does today's study indicate regarding what it means to be made in the image of God? Anybody had coffee this morning? Yeah, George. Okay, all right, so the sense, yeah, take care. Okay, we're more than body, but I would go beyond that and say that or the aspect in which you're image bearers of God does not relate to the physical. We, we, are, we are often confused in this, but I'll, I'll take Mrs. Shannon. Yeah, so you're into, you're into the, the faculties of our humanity that relate to the image of God are those spiritual faculties, not our physical faculties. So a spirit made perfect in redemption is still an image bearer of God, though they don't have a body. Okay, Daniel? Yeah, amen. So we're not like God in that sense. You know, he's, he's, he's far beyond us. That's, that's absolutely true. So, yeah, Dan.
Yeah, no, we're, we're in the image of God, and that, that image is broken by the fall and recreated in redemption. But what is that image? Well, it's not physical, so be, be clear in your mind. So God is eternal. God creates mankind, man and female and female, in his likeness, in his image. God makes them that way. That image is broken by the fall. God then brings into place revelation of himself and uses terms like his hands and his eyes and his feet. That does not mean that God possesses hands and eyes and feet. So we are made in his likeness, but not in our physicality. And so when God uses those terms, he's going back and condescending to our understanding. We know hands do things, feet move, mouths speak. We, we understand that. So that's what we call anthropomorphic language to describe God. But made in God's image is not a physical issue. It's a moral and a spiritual issue. Turn very quickly. Time is really gone here. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and the verse number 24. Again, this is referring to the renewing of the likeness of God in our, in our humanity. So we've, we've been redeemed. And that you put on the new man, which, note the language, after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So it's the moral faculty that is being made in God's image. The understanding, the will, again, the faculty of our affections, those things that are true in our humanity. There's another, another verse over in Colossians, chapter 3, verse number 10. And I've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. And so as, a, as men made in the image of God, it's not our physical features, but rather the faculty of reason and understanding, will and morality, spirituality, those things that are part and parcel of what makes us man as distinct from the rest of animal kind. We're distinct from the rest of the animal world. We, 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 have, we have faculties in God's image that they do not possess. The animal kind, they have instinct. We have understanding and reason and morality and spirituality in a way that the rest of the animal world does not have. We are distinct and made in God's image. And we praise God for that. And we must not abuse that. Be holy, for I am holy. Being made in the image of God gives us a tremendous responsibility to live a life in the mirror of God's character. That we should reflect God in this world. The other issue... Now I want to leave, and again, we've got three minutes left, and we'll better close. In terms of, this was mentioned already, in terms of idolatry. Turn, well, you, you know Ephesians chapter 20, or Exodus chapter 20. But turn then to Deuteronomy chapter 4. So Exodus 20, of course, is the, uh, the giving of the law of God on Mount Sinai. And you shall not make unto you any graven image, any likeness. Now, that reference in the second commandment, again, is not talking about having no other gods. That's the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So the second commandment is not repeating that. It is saying you must not use idols to worship the true God. You must not make any likeness or similitude of God. Okay, that's the point of the second commandment. It's not repeating the first Idols can represent false gods and often do. 
but they also must not represent the true God. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, again you have part of this here in terms of the, the revelation of God. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and the verse number 12. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. And then verse number 15. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude in the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And it goes on, the likeness, the likeness, verse 17 and verse 18. God will not be worshipped by idols. Because God cannot be worshipped by idols. Because there is no likeness of God. And therefore we must always abominate the use of idols in our worship. You say, well, we're Protestants. We don't do that sort of thing. Well, you may do it in your kids' books. And you may do it in your mental images of God. That when you come to worship, you think, well, it's going to be easier if, if I can convey or can conjure up some mental impression of what God looks like in my mind. That, dear believer, is spiritual heart idolatry. And you must put it to death. You must seek to only, you must only conceive of God as he has revealed himself, and that is without any similitude or likeness. And so spiritual worship is truly that. It is spiritual and it is not physical. You see, if you have an idol in your mind or a physical idol on your shelf, you will either worship the idol as God, and that's idolatry, first commandment violation, or you'll worship what you perceive to represent it through the idol. So you, you go to a Catholic and you say, well, you're, you're worshiping idols. No, 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 no. We're worshiping God through the idol. There's no need for an idol then. Just get rid of the idol. It's a waste of time. Worship God without the idol because that's what God's commanded. So flee from idolatry. Serve and worship the one true and living God and worship him in the way that he's commanded uh, without the use of any uh, external idols. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, it's not. There are there are levels of there are levels of discussion regarding the pictures and images of Jesus. I have no time for it personally, but there are there are those within an evangelical circle who say there is not necessarily idolatry involved. Not, I don't agree with it, but there are those who argue that it's not idolatry to have a picture of Jesus. I'm just, I don't misrepresent our denomination or the minds of others within our group. There are those who say we are simply making representation of his humanity, not trying to represent his deity. My point is. Two natures, one person joined together. He is the God-man in his ens- in essence, so therefore you don't have, have idols or pictures of that. Um, that's, there's complexity there, but yeah. Can be. It may not always be, though, but it, it can often be used that way. People, 
people like to have a physical form in their minds to worship. And we should avoid all of that, including crosses. Crucifixes, again, Christ not on the cross. So the idea of having a, uh, the man, Jesus, on the cross is, an, is another level of issue. You know? there's, there's, there's a lot involved in this. Yeah, somebody at the back there, Greg, and then uh, Sean, then better finish. Greg. Yeah, we don't know what he looks like. I think the, the, one of the interesting things is there are likenesses of Caesars from those days. And if God had wanted us to have a picture of Jesus, we'd have had it. And so there, there, it was possible to have likeness back to those days. So yeah, I, I, folks, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm just making the point when, I, when I'm, I want to be fair to people within our tradition and within our group that there are those who don't see it the way I see it in this. But I, I would have no picture of Jesus personally. And we don't have them in our kids' books. Sean. Yes. He does not. So you, Christ, there's a very important issue here, and it's actually it's rearing its head in present times. We've got to abominate what's known as the kenosis error regarding Christ Jesus, that when he came as a man, he emptied himself of parts or all of his deity. The word kenosis refers to emptying. It's used actually in, in Philippians chapter 2 for he humbled himself. But they said, well, that's, that should be translated emptied himself. And uh, that's not the case. So he did not empty himself of his deity in any part. And so when he refers to himself as not being a spirit, he is referring to his humanity at that point. That he's not a ghost. He's not a, an apparition in front of the disciples right now. He's, I'm not spirit in that sense. I'm, you, can, you can hold my arms and you can, you can handle me and touch me. You can see all these things. So I'm not, I'm not a spirit in that sense. But he's not suggesting for one second that he stopped being the second person of the Godhead. You know, you think of the of the situation. He says to them, you know, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Okay, so the, the, the presence of Christ is omnipresence is there, even in his humanity. And he also says, you know, which is in the bosom of the Father. So even when he's on earth in John 1, he's also in the bosom of the Father. So his spirituality is... is it's preserved in the Bible narrative when it comes even to his time on this earth and his humanity. It's true even now. Because the Lord is still God and man united in one person uh, forever, as our catechism says. So it's big, big things, folks. Uh, yep, Greg, we better stop soon. <laughs> So, clearly, spirits were capable of taking on physical form at times. Angels do. So, there was an understanding in the Old Testament from the Jews that a spiritual being could take on a physical form in some way. Somehow, in the permission of God, it's not sort of some magic apparition that you might see on Disney. It's none of that nonsense. It is, it is the fact that in God's permission, spiritual beings could take on physical form. So the angels come to, to Lot. They go to Sodom. So the three of them, one of them is more than likely the, the son of God, um, but there are others who were there and they were all seen. 
So it is, yeah, I, I get, some of these things are folks are hard, but we, that's why I say at the start, we, we reserve our judgments within the language of Scripture. And we keep ourselves there. I think Sean, or somebody else had some, one last comment, and better. Have you charged yet? Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, so he expands upon that. And so a couple of fairly, our time is really way, way gone. We'll, we'll start at 11.05, by the way, for, as far as the morning service goes. Psychosis and delusions will include visual hallucinations. So you will get people with, with genuine mental illness, and they will hallucinate, and they will see visions, and they will see people in their beds and different things. They are not necessarily seeing spiritual beings. So don't presume that every time somebody says, I saw someone at my bedside, that may well be someone perhaps with mild dementia who's now got a urinary infection and they're now, psych- they're now hallucinating and they're seeing things. That is not necessarily them seeing a spiritual being. That's how the mind at times can, can play tricks with us in, in our fallen humanity, okay? So every time somebody says to you, I saw someone, don't, don't start stoning them for seeing a, necessarily a spiritual being in front of them. But... We can entertain angels unawares. The Bible says that. Okay? I don't know what that means. But it says that it's possible, again, for us to entertain angels unawares. Whatever that means in, its, in, its, in our own day, I, I really am not sure. Okay? We better stop. You see, when you get into these things, you know, when you begin to think who God is like and what God is like, you, you really do open up some wonderful things. But may our hearts be drawn to worship our God and thank the Lord for sending His Son that we may understand the being of God in the person of Christ Jesus. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your help today. And we pray for grace and humility to understand these things, to study them carefully, to be wise and discerning, but above all, to worship thee in spirit and in truth. And may that be, may that be our joy today. May we give our hearts to worship thee. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.